Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Born Again, Book of Mormon. As listeners to this program will know, I was baptized into the LDS Church in June of 1978, fresh out of high school. This occurred in the small town of Sumner, Washington. I went on my mission to Japan a little less than a year and a half later, entering the MTC in November of 1979 and returning from Japan in November of 1981. By the time I got off my mission, my family had moved from Washington down to Austin, Texas, and so that is where I joined them at the end of my mission. I ended up spending the entirety of the decade of the 1980s in Austin, Texas, going first to undergraduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, where I graduated in 1984 with a Bachelor of Arts degree with a major in dance. I remained in Austin to go to law school at the University of Texas at Austin, where I graduated in 1989. But during this decade, I was extremely active in the LDS Church, as you might imagine, and part of that activity had to do with missionary work. Not only was I doing missionary work on the side as much as occasion would permit, I was also called as a stake missionary and then later as a ward mission leader. What with my interest in missionary work and my interest in the scriptures, not to mention Mormon apologetics, coupled with the fact that this was in the South, I had a number of opportunities to have discussions and even debates with born-again Christians. It seems you can't swing a cat in Austin, Texas without hitting a born-again Christian. They are all over the place. We debated a number of different things, including whether the Bible was the complete and final and inerrant Word of God, whether the Nicene Creed setting forth the doctrine of the Trinity is actually true, and perhaps most frequently, I got into debates with born-again Christians on the subject of salvation by grace. And it is that subject that I want to focus in on for tonight's episode. Because while I'm doing missionary work, while I'm attending school, while I was doing the 101 other things that I was busy doing in the 1980s, I was also very busy studying the scriptures and particularly studying the Book of Mormon. And it was toward the end of the 1980s that I came to a surprising realization. And that realization was that the subject of salvation in the Book of Mormon, and particularly whether it is that we are saved by grace or by works, the more I studied the Book of Mormon, the more I realized that the Book of Mormon was setting forth a concept of salvation and salvation by grace that was more in line with the born-again Christians I was arguing against than it was in line with the LDS Church of which I was a member, and for whom I was doing the missionary work. Now, the LDS concept of salvation, and by the way, the $5 word for the study of salvation is soteriology. So if you will permit me, let me use that $5 word here a bit because it's going to be useful. The soteriology of Mormonism that I had learned from the missionaries who taught me in 1978 and that I continued to hear from the leadership of the church and read about in the writings of the leadership of the church was very simple. Basically, we had to do everything that we could do to obey all the commandments of God. And in fact, obeying all the commandments of God is what was expected of us and even required of us if we were to have eternal life. Now, obviously, we would make mistakes along the way because, hey, we're only human. And that's where the atonement of Jesus Christ came in, was to clean up our mistakes and get forgiveness for those times that we had sinned so that we could get back on the right track and once again try by dint of our own efforts and our own struggles and our own will, using our moral agency to follow the commandments. In that way, I sort of envisioned Jesus as having a mop and he followed after us to clean up our messes when we made mistakes. But still, the responsibility for following all the commandments rested solely and entirely 
upon us. That's why I sort of came to understand the Mormon Jesus as a janitor. Janitor Jesus. He's got the mop. He's there to clean up. But really, that's the purpose of the atonement and not a whole lot more. Indeed, it was President Spencer W. Kimball, the president of the church when I joined the church and for seven years thereafter, who had written that it is our responsibility to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So while the Mormon soteriology was pretty clear in my mind, it was very different from the soteriology that was proposed, propounded, and preached by the born-again Christians that I encountered. Their version, of course, was simply that we have to accept Jesus as our Savior, we are saved by grace, and after that, the works we do will be good because of our love for him and because of the grace he has extended toward us, instead of the LDS version of doing works, i.e. following the commandments, in hopes of ultimately being able to follow them completely and being perfect by our own will and thereby attaining salvation. So as I say, as I was studying the Book of Mormon throughout the 80s and mostly toward the end of the 1980s, it was a surprise to me to find out that the Book of Mormon seemed to teach more what the born-again Christians were teaching than what the LDS Church was teaching. I ended up putting my thoughts down in writing and submitting a paper to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which was published in the early 1990s. The paper had to be softened a bit in order to be prepared for publication in an LDS journal, but I was still very happy to be published at all. This was the second time that I had been published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. A long time after that, however, I decided to take those same thoughts and put them down in what is hopefully a less scholarly form of writing. I mean, the scholarly form of writing has its own purposes and its own reasons. But unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, the scholarly form of writing still tends to be very dry and boring. What I wanted to try and do was to take the same concepts and put them down in a way that would be more accessible to a wider audience and hopefully more interesting. And not only that, there were a number of other insights that I had learned after the publication of my paper that I wanted to include. And so this is what I will be performing for you tonight is my research on the subject of being born again as it is taught in the Book of Mormon. Now, this may sound strange to some listeners that the whole concept and soteriology in the Book of Mormon is different than the soteriology of the LDS Church. I mean, wouldn't they be identical, what with the LDS Church being based upon the Book of Mormon and proclaiming with great frequency that the Book of Mormon is the cornerstone of the religion itself and that a man will get closer to God by obeying its precepts than by any other book? Well, if you are surprised by that idea, imagine how surprised I was as I began to discover this through my study of the Book of Mormon. Okay, so now I want to perform for you my paper that I wrote, the popularized paper with the additional insights on the Born Again Book of Mormon. Here we go. Salvation by grace is all over the Book of Mormon, like white on rice. And by grace, I don't mean the modern Mormon misconception of a little dollop doled out by God after we have done everything we can possibly do. I mean the superabundance of grace God gives us to be saved without our doing anything at all. A grace separate and apart from works. A grace that precedes works. A grace God is dying to give us for the asking. Grace figures in every major conversion story in the Book of Mormon. These stories are structured so that there can be no mistake the protagonists are saved by grace without their having to do anything to earn it. To qualify for it, we hear that word a lot in 
the LDS Church, don't we, about qualifying for exaltation. But the protagonists are saved by grace without their having to do anything to earn it, to qualify for it, or to merit it. That is because time after time, the people being saved in the Book of Mormon are in a state where they are rendered immobile. In other words, they literally can do nothing. They can't move a finger. And so the salvation that comes to them while in this state cannot be the result of any work of their own, but purely and solely through the grace and mercy of God. Now I'm going to go through the different stories in the Book of Mormon that illustrate this concept. Story number one is found in Mosiah chapter 27 and also Alma 36. It is the conversion story of Alma the Younger, which is told in the third person in Mosiah 27 and then in the first person in Alma 36. Alma the Younger, full of sin, while on his wicked way to destroy the church, ran into an angel blocking his path. Alma was struck down by the angel and remained motionless for three days. See, there's that immobile part. He was rendered immobile. But things were going on in his mind and in his heart. His body was immobile, but his spirit, his mind, was still completely active. Alma, recognizing his plight, called upon God for mercy and was instantaneously saved by the grace of God. That's in Alma 36, verse 18. Upon arising, he proclaimed that he was, quote, redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. Mosiah chapter 27 and 24. Alma the Younger was saved by grace. All he had to do was ask. It was not based on any works of his, for the only works he had done before being saved were evil, and he could do no work at all after he was struck down. And by way of warning, Alma relays a message from God to the rest of us. Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, that's about everybody, right? Must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters, and thus they become new creatures. And unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. That's Mosiah 27, verses 25 through 26. So not only Alma, but all of us must be born again in a similar manner as Alma to be saved. This is the message of the Book of Mormon from the story of Alma the Younger. Story number two. This is found in Alma chapters 18 through 19. Lethal Ammon, his sword still smoking with the blood of unruly Lamanites, preached salvation by the blood of Jesus in the court of King Lamoni. We all know the story, right? The king, smitten by his sins, cried to God for mercy and fell unto the earth as if he were dead. See this pattern repeating? And that's in Alma 18, verses 41 through 42. King Lamoni awakes days later, long enough to claim he has seen his Redeemer. Then he sinks again to the earth along with his queen, The servants all start to cry unto God. That's the expression used in the Book of Mormon. The servants all start to cry unto God, and they fall to the earth as well. When the queen is raised up, she has been saved from an awful hell by Jesus and blesses God for his mercy. That's Alma 19, verse 29. And when the servants are raised, they claim that their hearts have been changed, that they have no more desire to do evil. That's Alma 19 and 33. Story number three, 
This is found in Alma chapter 22, where we have Aaron, Ammon's brother, having a similar experience with a different group of Lamanites. Faithful Aaron, freshly freed from prison, teaches Lamoni's father that man, quote, could not merit anything of himself, unquote, but that through the power of Jesus he may be freed from spiritual captivity if he, quote, will bow down before God and call on his name in faith. That's Alma 22, verse 16. This the king does, and, quote, was struck as if he were dead. Once again, we're seeing this pattern. Upon being raised, the king began to minister unto his whole household, such that they too were converted unto the Lord. Now, those first three stories are extremely familiar to most Mormons. This fourth story just as clearly follows the same pattern, but it is not as familiar for whatever reason to most members of the church. It is found in Helaman chapter 5. This is a story about Nephi and Lehi. Not the original Nephi and Lehi, of course, but subsequent missionaries who have the same names. Nephi and Lehi are thrown into prison for preaching to the Lamanites that, quote, there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That's Helaman 5.9. Though Nephi and Lehi are protected by a pillar of fire, the prison shook, threatening to crush their Lamanite captors, who, quote, were immovable because of the fear which did come upon them. That's Helaman 5.34. One of the paralyzed Lamanite crew a backslid Nephite by the name of Aminadab, saw Nephi and Lehi in shining morning face, conversing with unseen beings above. Cloaked in a Stygian shroud, the Lamanites ask Aminadab what they should do that this cloud of darkness may be removed from overshadowing us. Aminadab told them to cry unto the voice. That would be the voice from heaven in the story, which the Lamanites did. Yea, they did cry even until the cloud of darkness was dispersed. And then they found that they were encircled about, yea, every soul, every one of them, by a pillar of fire. And angels came down out of heaven and ministered unto them. So those are the first four stories from the Book of Mormon that deal with this exact same kind of theme. So let me give a brief recap of these first four stories. All four of these conversion stories have in common the theme that those redeemed were struck down or rendered immobile such that they could perform no physical work to aid in their salvation. But saved they were, not by any work they performed, but purely through the grace and mercy of God. All they had to do was ask for it. I mean, I'm sounding like a born-again Christian now, aren't I? But this is what the Book of Mormon teaches. All they had to do was ask for it. And immediately, upon their asking, Grace was given them, not sparingly, but abundantly and lavishly, until their cup was not only full, but running over. Highlighting the fact they did nothing to merit God's grace, all of these people were wicked and sinful up to the very moment of their salvation. They repented of their sins in their asking for grace. But God did not stint nor require a probation period to prove their worthiness. God's grace abounded as soon as they asked, and they were immediately saved, born again, made new creatures in Christ. And those are the expressions that we find in the Book of Mormon for crying out loud. Pardon the pun. Now, we get to story number five, which is in Mosiah chapters one through five, which is a variation on this same story. And it also goes to show that obedience is not the key to salvation. 
Let me repeat that for the members of the Strengthening Church Members Committee who are listening to this podcast. Obedience is not the key to salvation. By way of contrast, the Book of Mormon provides an example of an entire group of people who were not wicked when they were saved. These are the people of King Benjamin, who were, quote, diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord. That's from Mosiah chapter 1, verse 11. So these people are like Mormons today. They are diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord. They're not wicked like the people in these other four stories that I've just recounted. These people are righteous, at least by modern Mormon standards. And yet, their righteousness did not make them right with God. They were missing something. And that something they were missing was Jesus. King Benjamin preached a mighty sermon to his people, teaching the perils of trying to get into God's good graces by way of obey. Realizing their good works were as filthy rags, they fell to the earth and all cried aloud with one voice saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ. That's Mosiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. In response and with no delay, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and claimed that the Spirit has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. And that's in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 5, verse 2. And so we see that even righteous commandment keepers are not saved by their works, but only by the grace of God. Good works alone are never enough, not according to the Book of Mormon at least. God's grace alone is sufficient. And now story number six. This is something that was not included in the original paper when it was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, but something that occurred to me only sometime after the fact. Story number six, which is found in 1 Nephi chapter 8. And this story I title, The Other Way to the Tree of Life. In recounting his iconic dream, Lehi focuses so much on others pressing their way to the tree of life along the iron rod, it is easy to overlook the point that Lehi arrived by a different route. In fact, Lehi is not even aware there is an iron rod until he is already at the tree. So if Lehi does not get to the tree of life by way of the narrow path and the rod of iron, how does he arrive? Lehi follows a gleaming guide into a dark and dreary waste, where he is abandoned and wanders alone many hours in darkness. What does Lehi do? He tells us, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me. And in response, Lehi sees a large and spacious field with a fruitful tree. And he says, And I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof. All this happens in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 11. But it is not until 1 Nephi 8, verse 19, that Lehi sees there is a rod of iron leading to the tree, and not until the following verse that he sees the straight and narrow path. There is another way to the tree of life. It is Lehi's way. It is the way of grace given immediately to Lehi when he calls upon God for mercy. To paraphrase Thoreau, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of salvation, there is one striking at the root. And now story number seven, which is from 1 Nephi chapter 7, the chapter immediately before 1 Nephi chapter 8, which we just talked about. Brawny Nephi bound by brothers, prays to God for strength to burst his bands, 
But God does not give Nephi the extra strength to perform this superhuman feat. Nephi will not work his way out of bondage. Instead, God intervenes another way and, quote, the bands were loosed from off my hands and feet. That's 1 Nephi chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Now, I know that it is common in artwork to see Nephi as if he is by his own strength bursting those bands, but that is actually contradicted by the text of the actual story itself. The text says that although Nephi prayed to God for strength to burst his bands, God did not answer his prayer in the way he prayed for it. Instead, God freed Nephi by loosening the bands himself from off of his hands and his feet. God answers Nephi's prayer, but not in the way Nephi prayed it. Even in the details, the Book of Mormon depicts God's hand in redemption and leaves no leeway for Nephi to second guess that maybe he did it himself, or even that Nephi's strength played any part in his redemption. Nephi was freed from bondage solely by the grace of God, and God wanted to make sure Nephi knew it. So there we have no less than seven stories in the Book of Mormon talking about people being saved by grace, not by any works of their own. Though not exhaustive, these seven stories serve to illustrate the overarching Book of Mormon theme of salvation by grace and not by works. Grace illuminates every story and permeates every page. Nonetheless, LDS doctrine appears to have strayed from its roots. It is common now to hear of salvation coming through works by lifting ourselves by our bootstraps, by doing everything we can possibly do before grace is applied to make up the difference to qualify ourselves by obedience to have the companionship of the Holy Ghost, that being born again is a process, not an event. These are all ideas and doctrines we hear in the LDS Church, but which appear to be contradicted by the Book of Mormon itself. The Book of Mormon teaches the opposite on all these points. Another such meme, more and more heard, is exemplified in Elder Bednar's famous general conference talk in which he likened the plan of salvation to the pickling process. Yes, this is the famous pickle talk by Elder Bednar, the one that really put him on the map. According to Elder Bednar, a person is born again from being a cucumber of carnality to a pickle of perfection (laughs) through a slow and gradual persistent process of upward incrementalization. After citing the example of the people of King Benjamin, ironically enough, whose spiritual birth occurred quickly and all at once, Elder Bednar strangely states the very opposite. Play the tape. The spiritual rebirth described in this verse typically does not occur quickly or all at once. It is an ongoing process, not a single event. Line upon line and precept upon precept, gradually and almost imperceptibly, our motives, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds become aligned with the will of God. This phase of the transformation process requires time, persistence, and patience. A cucumber only becomes a pickle through steady, sustained, and complete immersion in salt brine. Now hang on a second, Elder Bednar. Nowhere in the Book of Mormon is there an example of what you're describing. And likely, there is no such example in all of the standard works. There simply are no stories in the scriptures of people being born again 
gradually and almost imperceptibly, to use Elder Bednar's expression. Instead, all Book of Mormon conversion stories are indeed an event, not a process. Just as being born the first time is an event and not a process, so is being born again. It is hard to escape the conclusion that Elder Bednar is actually teaching against the Book of Mormon. And remarkably, he is quoting from the Book of Mormon to do so. But Elder Bednar is not alone. He merely typifies an increasing trend in the Mormon doctrine of salvation, a trend that diverges significantly from the Book of Mormon itself. Elder D. Todd Christofferson struck the same discordant note in April 2008 General Conference. Play the tape. You may ask, why doesn't this mighty change happen more quickly with me? You should remember that the remarkable examples of King Benjamin's people, Alma and some others in the scripture, are just that, remarkable and not typical. For most of us, the changes are more gradual and occur over time. Being born again, unlike our physical birth, is more a process than an event, and engaging in that process is the central purpose of mortality. Okay, hang on a second, Elder D. Todd Christofferson. Why should the multitudinous Book of Mormon examples be considered remarkable and not typical, as you say? They appear to have been typical for people in Book of Mormon times, and why do church leaders never give a scriptural example of what they term typical? Could it be because there is no scriptural example to give? This anti-scriptural dumbing down of salvation expectation is becoming the rule in LDS church teachings, and in its place is substituted a plan of salvation completely foreign to the Book of Mormon, a plan based on slow and plodding incremental obedience through sheer force of will. Now, self-improvement programs have their place, but they will never lead to salvation. Using this method, one can spend a lifetime climbing a ladder only to find at the end it is leaning against the wrong tree. Yes, I use that expression in this paper as well. This final part is called a missing grace? Question mark. Get it? A missing grace? Amazing grace? Huh? Huh? The question could be asked as to why such a doctrinal shift would occur in the first place especially considering how diametrically opposed it is to the foundational LDS scriptural text, i.e. the Book of Mormon. Is it possible a gradual and almost imperceptible process of salvation is preferable precisely because it is gradual and almost imperceptible? Is a salvation that transpires invisibly and undetected favored because it is impossible to tell if it hasn't happened? Are we really just relying on the arm of the flesh to be as good as we can be. This smacks more of human effort than God's intervention. And indeed, Elder Bednar teaches that the transformation of spiritual rebirth is a process that requires time, persistence, and patience. Those are his exact words. Why does it require time and patience? It is never a process in the Book of Mormon, but always an event that happens immediately. No time or patience required. Why does it require persistence? Whose persistence? Ours? This sounds perilously close to the doctrine of salvation by works, a doctrine panned in the Book of Mormon by King Mosiah, who instead taught his righteous people that they could never get into God's good graces by mere obedience, by way of obey. This is higher in salary, not salvation by grace, at least not salvation by grace as taught in the Book of Mormon. In short, 
Why has it become common for the LDS Church to abandon its own scriptures in favor of teaching a graceless plan of salvation? And with that thought-provoking question, I conclude my essay. This, to my mind, is one of the most important insights that I have ever gained from my study of the Book of Mormon, and I am grateful for this opportunity to share it with you. In thinking about it, it's kind of strange that here I have been podcasting for over three and a half years and podcasting pretty much continuously for the last nine weeks, and only now am I getting around to sharing with you what I think is one of the most important insights that I have ever found in the Book of Mormon. Now, to be clear, I am not vouching for the truth or accuracy of this doctrine as taught in the Book of Mormon. What I am saying is that salvation by grace and being born again is all over the pages of the Book of Mormon and pointing out the distinct and somewhat strange contrast that the Book of Mormon teaches one thing on the subject and that LDS church leaders appear to be teaching something entirely different. And not just on some kind of peripheral subject like whether it's okay to drink herbal tea or decaffeinated coffee, but on the single most critical question and issue of all, how it is that we are saved. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.